Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of conversations about law practice. Each week, we talk with legal entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are your hosts. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Stephanie Everett. And this is episode 259 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with Annie Grace about controlling alcohol. If today's podcast resonates with you and you haven't read the Small Firm Roadmap yet, get the first chapter right now for free at lawyerist.com book. Today's podcast is brought to you by Smith AI, Rankings.io, Text Expander, and Back Office Betty's. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support, so stay tuned. We'll tell you more about them later on. Hey, Sam. So today I thought it's the beginning of a new year, and it's time to plan our conferences and travel plans for the new year. I wonder if lawyers actually sit down and plan out their conferences. I know some do. Like uh, Justy Nickel in Lab was saying she, you know, picks her conferences carefully every year. What's your strategy? Well, if I was a lawyer. Like if I, I guess you and I go where I, we are invited mostly. Yeah. I was like, our strategy is a little different. I think, yeah, I think you have limited time and you have limited resources. And so you probably want to be thoughtful about your conference strategy. We may have talked about this once, but we had a team member, I think Aaron last year, accidentally ended up having like two conferences and a vacation in the same month. And that was just really hard. So, you know, setting your sights on where you want to go now, ideally, hopefully they are far enough apart that that wouldn't happen, but that would also then help you. And then you could also pencil in vacation travel and just spread it out and have a good travel year. You know, maybe you design your conference strategy around um, hanging out with a lawyerist crew, (laughs) right? That would be fun. You are going to be speaking at ABA Tech Show this year. Is that in March? The end of February. Oh, the end of February this year. Okay. That's in Chicago at the Hyatt. Uh, What are your topics? Yeah, I'm super excited. I'm going to be talking about hiring and firing with value and culture in mind, and then also building a marketing budget and plan based on data and KPIs. Oh, very cool. Several of us will probably be at the Clio Cloud Conference, which will be towards in what I think September, October, October in San Diego again. And in between, we will be doing two lab cons this year yeah, uh, in Atlanta and in Minneapolis again. Super excited about that. We've added another lab con to our calendar for 2020. So we'll be in March. And somebody asked me today who lives in Minnesota what the weather would be like in March in Atlanta. <laughs> I was Spring. like, I don't, I don't know, but it's going to be better than where you live. So she should just come. <laughs> I don't know. March is like in Minnesota is it's uh, three feet of snow. And then the next day it'll be summer. It's always a crazy month. So I know I feel like it's crazy everywhere, but yeah. it'll be a good time to come and, you know, set your priorities. And for those who haven't heard, it's for our lab community when we do LabCon, but it's really not a typical conference or CLE because it's not a typical agenda with speakers. And it's more we get together and do design thinking and workshops and work on tools to implement in your firm and have a lot of fun. So the goal of LabCon is to send you home with a work plan or having made huge huge progress on something, a problem that you brought with you to LabCon. And it's something that people come back to again and again, because it's like a mini accelerator for everyone who attends. It's pretty cool. Yeah. So when you're thinking about conferences, that should probably be a piece of it. What's your goal for the conference? Why are you going? Mm-hmm. You know, what do you want to get out of it? There's obviously social aspects and networking aspects. And some people go because they know their potential clients will be there. Like if it's not a legal industry, mm-hmm. I think that's another thing that we probably should
should encourage people to do more is get outside of legal and consider learning what other businesses are doing and what you can pick up from them. And I think consider how you can develop your skills through your conference attendance or in other ways. You know, if one of your goals is to learn more about a thing, whether it's relevant to your practice or not, find a way to get to a conference about it. That's where sometimes the magic happens. So, yeah. And if you want to put LabCon on your schedule and you're not yet talking to Stephanie and Jennifer about joining Lab, do that. Go to the website and click on the community tab and talk to one of them about Lab and see if it's a good fit for you and your firm. Or go take the scorecard or read the book. Any of those are good ways to figure out if it might be a good fit for you. So check that out. Yeah. And if you're coming to Tech Show in February, we'll make sure to connect with you on our Facebook page. And, you know, I'm sure we'll gather at least to say hi to everybody. And we'd love to see you there. Yeah. One of the reasons we go to conferences is to hang out with members of the community. So if you know you're going to be in a place where we are, let's make sure we get a chance to say hi at least and maybe hang out. So now we've got a brief sponsored conversation with Maddie Martin from Smith AI and then my awesome conversation with Annie Grace. I'm Maddie Martin, Head of Growth and Education at Smith AI. We are a virtual receptionist and web chat service serving small businesses across the U.S., and we primarily serve solo and small firm attorneys. Maddie, thanks for being with us again. You were pointing out to me something that is obviously an issue, which is, you know, when, when I talk about where the future of law is going, where the present is, we often sort of do the, the recitation of startups, like, you know, your clients are expecting the kind of service that they get from Uber and Amazon and and on and on and on. They're expecting the kind of quality that Apple delivers. And yet, as you point out, like how in the world is a small firm supposed to compete with these massive, well-funded, rich, um, multinational corporations? How can a small firm do that? Shed some light on that, the issue there, and help us kind of see our way through to some solutions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the issue really is at the root of it that your consumers, your potential clients for your law firm, and actually your existing clients for your law firm are operating in the world. You know, people don't operate in a silo. They order a ride on Uber. They order their groceries to be delivered on Instacart. They order something with free one-day shipping on Amazon. I mean, things that used to cost a lot of money cost almost no money. So the premium services like professional legal services are, you know, at a point where there is a challenge to make sure you're conveying sufficient value, but also, and also not eating into margins for staff that you may or may not need full time, but to provide that level of responsiveness when you're also probably busy in court doing case research and doing other really high value tasks during the day. So there is a massive importance on utilizing tools that allow for automation and delegation, which now more than ever allow you to do so at a very low cost. I mean, the best example that I have here is like reduce the email back and forth by using online calendaring because Calendly is free. Yeah. I mean, it's like there is so much instantness or even quickness, right? Like, you know, Amazon at worst is a two day shipping for me. Uh, I can't get some lawyers to respond to me within two days, but I can get a package. I I can get a couch delivered to my house in two days. (laughs) So, so how do lawyers even measure up to that? Especially in light of things like the legal trends report, where we know that like that a lot of calls go to voicemail and then don't even get responded to, you know? So how do we convince lawyers that clients aren't just going to fall back on other forms of communication? Well, clients are not going to wait for you to communicate with them if you don't respond immediately. So we know that two out of three potential clients base their decision to hire on the initial responsiveness of the firm and that 
the majority of other law firms are not getting back to emails and to phone calls. They're not providing also enough information during those phone calls about what it's going to take to complete this legal matter to handle it on behalf of the client. So that goes for timing, it goes for price, setting expectations, next steps. The CLEO report from 2019 showed that all of these things are important in addition to a friendly, fast response. So the best thing that you can do is to A, just have a gut check and say, there's no possible way I can do this all by myself in mm -hmm. addition to <laughs> running a law firm and being a lawyer and building my network and doing all these things. But at the same time, you want to convey trust and set expectations properly that you're running a very professional and capable law firm that has high quality, which is conveyed at the outset by your responsiveness and friendliness and ability to answer questions. So you set expectations. And so you bring in the best potential clients and spend your energy on bringing those clients in who are most qualified. So what we know is that clients don't always know what questions to ask, but they do know how to get in touch with you. So if you have blocked them on some channels, like by not allowing text messages or not having website chat on your website or letting people go to a voicemail who have called you, that really is the very bare minimum where opening up those channels and then properly staffing them with automated responses or or outsource services because we know there isn't always the wherewithal to have a full-time staff person on these communication channels. That is the, the bare minimum where you are actually able to deliver a great experience and to compete with the expectations that you're going to be a responsive business, which now is defined even faster than ever. And if the thought of letting clients text you to your business phone number or adding chat to your website or even just picking up the phone all the time makes your head spin, visit smith.ai. That's the website address to learn more about Smith AI's services, uh, which include reception and web chat and text messaging. The first 30 people can get $150 credit towards the setup fee of the chatbot, which you can set it up yourself, but but if you want help doing it, um, the first 30 people will get that set up for free. And you can learn more about all of the services that Smith offers at smith.ai. Maddie Martin, thanks so much for being with us again. Thanks for having me, Sam. My name is Annie Grace. I am the author of This Naked Mind and The Alcohol Experiment and really just want people to help, you know, look at alcohol mindfully more than anything else. Thanks for having me. Welcome to the podcast, Annie. It's kind of been an interesting experience getting you on the podcast. I had no idea who you were until about 30 days ago, exactly, when one of our community members, Jennifer Longton, said you have to have Annie Grace on your podcast. And I found your materials. I started my own alcohol experiment. I read This Naked Mind. And um, now you're a celebrity in my mind, and I'm thrilled to have you on the podcast. So welcome. That's awesome. You have your own podcast called This Naked Mind too, right? Yes, This Naked Mind podcast. Very cool. After I learned who you were and started investigating and reading, your name kept popping up more and more and more, especially among people I know who've had their own struggles with alcohol. You've helped a lot of people. That must be a really humbling and amazing experience. Yeah, it's it's mind blowing and definitely like, okay, this is happening with or without me. I'm just glad to be able to play a part, <laughs> right? <laughs> Do you know how many people have signed up for the alcohol experiment? It feels like thousands. Yes. Maybe tens of thousands. No, we've crossed a hundred thousand. Just wow. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's really amazing. Well, good good work, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> You probably don't need me to pat you on the back, but great work. I appreciate it. One of the things that drew me immediately to you was, I guess, 
like I don't I don't want to hate on those who are working at substance abuse from other angles, but the AA message has never resonated with me. But your message is more around it felt like it was more accepting of using alcohol as a spectrum. And if I feel like I need to take a break, then I probably do. And here's a very convenient way to think about it. And then in the alcohol experiment, it was more of a scientific approach to changing my mind about things. But clearly you have engaged with that idea of what does it mean to have a problem? And you talk about this a lot in the book. And how should we be thinking about that? If the idea has occurred to us, how do we think about whether or not we have a problem? Yeah, it's such a good question. And I, I kind of want to address it in two different parts. And, and first of all, talking specifically about the paradigms that exist. And it's funny because I, I didn't get into this. I got into this with my own story and doing a lot of research and coming to some conclusions that were different than what I was seeing in like the world and saying, hey, this is really interesting. And one of those conclusions was really that we don't use this all or nothing mentality with anything else. I mean, I can't yeah. think of anything else where 100% is success and 99.9% .9 is like shameful, abject failure. Like it is if you have a drink after you're sober, you know, quote, or if you're in recovery. And not only do we not use it with anything else, it, it isn't relevant to the majority of people. Mm -hmm. And so I started thinking like, well, what, you know, what does it mean then to have a problem? Do you need to stop drinking forever? And the science says that most people don't. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah. actually, like, according to the Center for Disease Control, 90% of people who excessively drink aren't chemically addicted. They're not clinically addicted. They don't need sobriety as their solution. And I'm trying to remember from your book, but there is such a thing as chemical addiction where, like, if you do have another sip at any point in your life, it will sort of wake your brain up to addiction again and you'll be addicted all over again. But that isn't the majority? No, it's not. It's yeah. only 10% of excessive drinkers. So it's a, it's a vast minority of people. Huh. And you know, that really happens over time. Alcohol changes the brain to where you have fewer dopamine receptors and all that detail. And basically what happens is then, yeah, one drink after even 10 years of sobriety can get you right back into the pits of the pathways in the brain that were originally addicted. But hmm. most people, you know, they just need a break. And sometimes even- Most people are on a spectrum. A total spectrum. Yeah. And actually the, the whole term alcoholic is not even recognized by the medical community anymore. It's called alcohol use disorder. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, it's, it's 11 questions and it cuts to the heart of, do I have a problem? Two of those 11 questions are these, do I drink more than I need to, to get the same effect? And do I ever regret drinking saying, oh man, I overdid it last night. And for me in my profession, which is, I was in the marketing advertising world. That was me and everybody I knew. Mm -hmm. <laughs> But if I measured myself on that 11-question spectrum, answering yes to those two questions was really mild, but yeah. it wasn't something I should necessarily ignore, right? I mean, it kind of feels like if you think you might have a problem, then you probably have something that is worth doing something about. Yeah, if you're asking, and I, I like to frame it like this. I like to say the question, you know, we know that our brains are almost like computers, right? They give us the answers to the questions we ask them. Mm-hmm. And if you're asking the question, do I think I have a problem? The answer to that is either going to be yes or no, and it's either going to be stressful or not stressful. And the yes answer is going to be stressful. So we're going to want to, our brains are going to be biased to say no. And that's just how it's going to work. So I always like to say, well, what if we just asked a better question? Like, wouldn't that be more fun? Mm -hmm. What if we just asked, like, would, would my life be a bit better drinking less? Yeah. Would I be more productive drinking less? Would I be happier? Would I lose weight? Would I look better? How could it be? Like, what if we ask that question? Because then the yes to that 
isn't filled with anxiety. It's like, huh, that's interesting. All right, maybe I'll give it a try. Yeah, I think your construction is a bit more of like, would you like to be drinking less and you're not, don't seem to be able to do that? If so, then like maybe it's worth addressing that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And just, and just kind of even moving further and further back from the, you know, if it is a spectrum and you imagine it on the spectrum and, and the end of the spectrum is kind of this rock bottom, you know, your life becomes unmanageable. You have to, you know, go and, and either get treatment or, or whatever the case is, how far back can we move this conversation? I mean, mm -hmm. my, my goal really is to make alcohol, uh, you know, our conversation around alcohol, they should be a wellness conversation rather than an addiction conversation. Because again, the reality is most people are not addicted. The approach you take in This Naked Mind, which I've read and I haven't read the alcohol experiment, but the approach you take in there is the book is a process in and of itself where you're trying to reprogram the reader's unconscious by talking to their conscious mind about alcohol. And I, I found that to be really powerful. And there's no subject, like, I think if people have gotten to this point in the podcast and they do have a question about problematic drinking, they should probably just pick up your book or start the alcohol experiment or both. But- <laughs> but uh, can we talk a bit about alcohol itself? Because you bust some myths and I want you to bust those myths for us on the podcast about alcohol being healthier or the key to a long life or just the fact that it might not be all that dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so interesting because in my journey, I remember intentionally being told that, okay, a glass of red wine is good for your heart. Yes. So I'm going to intentionally start to drink that every day. And I, I might've even been told that by a doctor, to be honest with you, because I didn't, I didn't really start drinking until I was in the corporate world. I mean, I drank here and there in college, but it wasn't until I was in, in the corporate hmm. world and kind of happy hour and the pressure there took over. And so a lot of my drinking was really launched, I would say in my career. And I didn't have any inkling that it wasn't healthy for you. In fact, I thought it was healthy for you. Mm -hmm. And certainly we all know in the back of our mind, well, yeah, we see, you know, somebody on the side of the road with a paper bag and a bottle of bourbon in it. And, and that's not healthy, but red wine certainly is healthy. Right. And one thing that I noticed is how often I just read headlines, you know, and when we've got the bias of social sharing, because we're going to share stuff, the science of sharing says we're going to share stuff that makes us feel better about ourselves, makes us more accepted by our peers. And, and those things then by their very nature are not always going to be the controversial thing. It's the echo chamber, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Unless the controversial thing is like, we're all rallying together against the controversial thing, mm -hmm. but it's very much still going to be the tribal thing. So if you're in a if you're in a social circle that's drinking a lot, sharing something about, you know, a half, I saw the article, a glass of red wine is more effective than half an hour at the gym or um, yeah. <laughs> drinkers, moderate drinkers live longer than non-drinkers. That feels less ridiculous, but the gym one feels intuitively just ridiculous. Although I, I want to believe it. <laughs> right, right. You want to believe it. And, and there is, I mean, each of these, if you look, so so what I started to do is I started to say, huh, how does this line up with the fact that if I drink too much, I have to throw up to save my life. Mm -hmm. My body literally rebels against the alcohol to the point where like it expels it or I will die. Like, how does that sync up? Right. And how does it, how does it sync up with the statistic I read that like just two drinks a week increases a woman's chance of breast cancer by 15%. Like, how does that work? And so I started to look beneath the headlines and actually start to read the studies. And it is amazing how you can manipulate science. And I'm sure your audience is so well aware of this, fact, <laughs> but it's, amazing how you can manipulate. So in the, you live longer, that study is called the Houlihan study. And basically they took, they 
looked at people over a very long period of time, it was more than 20 years, and they looked at how many of them died. Now, they didn't look at cause of death, but they did look at other things like how active they were, how much they drank. And they made a correlation that the people who drank a lot died first, the people who never drank died second, and the people who moderately drank died third. Now, what they left out of the headline that is very clearly written in the study is that the never drinkers were people who had either health issues or prior problems with alcohol. And that's why they, they weren't drink. drinking for other reasons that would probably explain why they died earlier. <laughs> yes. yes. And, and often that reason was a prior problem with alcohol. So they were sober in recovery. So they'd already done the damage right. to the liver. So then you have this headline saying, moderate drinking makes you live longer. No, like, and it's just so far from reality. You know, it's the same thing with red wine and heart health. So they basically did a study where, and it was in mice, where resveratrol, which is the you know compound in wine that is supposed to be really good for your heart, reduced, um, it was heart disease in mice. Mm-hmm. And so there was this huge study and they said, okay, red wine is good for your heart because it has this chemical compound, which by the way is also found in like blueberries and stuff like that. But let's conveniently leave that out, you know, all these <laughs> antioxidants and whatever. And then they did, a, they did a study within the last few years where they actually decided to test this in, I believe it was either Italy or France against people who were drinking lots of red wine and heart health. And they found that that compound actually did not have an effect on human heart health. It was just in the mice that that came up and they couldn't replicate the mice study. But again, once that headline gets out there, you can look at this and you can say, okay, if there's a headline, there was a headline recently about no level of alcohol is safe for you. That came out about a year and a half ago. And nobody shares that one. Nobody shares (laughs) it because crickets you're not going to get the comments everybody's going to be like you're a party pooper what are you doing like way to bring down the mood right Mm -hmm. but you get one that says you know alcohol makes you live longer and all of a sudden everybody's like yes you know and it's i mean i'm sure you're well aware of this term but it's just confirmation bias we want to confirm the things we're doing anyway to make ourselves feel better it's just how the brain works you know it's it's actually really innocent because we don't realize we're doing it but we do have i think humans who when we start to drink too much, speaking from my own experience, you get this, this little nagging voice. And it's like, huh, you know, is this really okay? Why don't I feel good today? Am I really going to work again with a hangover? Right. Oh, more Advil? Is that really good for me? And there's this little voice. And you want that, you either have to do something about that voice by making a different decision, which feels really hard, or you need to do things to make that voice quieter. And some of these, you know, confirmation bias, no, it is healthy for me. I, you know, I saw this article, I'm going to look that up. I'm going to drink with my friends. I'm going to, you know, all Mm -hmm. these things so that we, we just make more and more peace with with this question. And again, because the, the primary question we're asking is, oh no, do I have a problem? Right. And, and that answer is scary and stressful. And, and we're looking for ways to answer no. <laughs> right. And when we get stressed, what do drinkers do? <laughs> yeah. Drink, right? Like that's how it works. <laughs> I mean, in reading in This Naked Mind, you go into some detail around, on the one hand, the massive weight of scientific and medical literature and studies and writing on the fact that any amount of alcohol is, is harmful or can be harmful, versus the highly publicized flawed interpretations of a couple of studies. And what struck me was like, I can't, I can't simultaneously believe that alcohol is good for me and that climate change is real and that vaccinations are, are safe because <laughs> it's, it's a similar thing where there's, 
you know, 99% of the ev the weight of evidence for climate change is on one side and a couple of flawed interpretations of quack science on the other. And the same for, you know, vaccinations causing autism. Like I, I can't carry those contradictory things in my head at the same time. So I guess now I believe that any amount of alcohol can be harmful. So, or is harmful. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's really interesting. I, I think it's so, it, you bring up just this topic that I, I feel needs to be discussed. First of all, with climate change, I think it's really interesting because climate change not existing is a much less stressful belief. <laughs> it is, that's true. <laughs> right? <laughs> and alcohol being healthy when we're drinking it is a much less stressful belief. So our brains are naturally going to gravitate towards things that make us feel better in the moment, even in, if over the long term, they're not going to make us feel as good, which is really, really interesting. But it also brings up this idea of, okay, well, how can those things coexist? How can I say any alcohol is not safe but then we live in a society where, look, let's be honest, there's going to be times where I'm probably going to drink. Mm -hmm. And choosing to not drink at all, like, you know, I I don't really drink at all anymore. I haven't had a drink in almost five years now. But that is a very countercultural position right now. And especially mm -hmm. when I was still working in corporate. I mean, I remember going on these work trips to like Brazil and London and Dubai and not drinking and just like blowing people. I remember being in Australia, not drinking or in the UK and people are like, what is happening? Like, it was so intense. But how can we you know, have those two things and have the tension between, okay, alcohol is dangerous in any amount, yet I'm still going to continue to drink. Because I think if we ignore that it's dangerous in any amount, we're not going to take a mindful approach to it. Right. But if we allow that it's dangerous, then drinking is going to become really stressful and we might either drink more or, you know, be frustrated, whatever the case is, or ignore the evidence that it is harmful. How can those things coexist? And I like to talk about this idea of we do lots of things intentionally and mindfully that are risky. We get in our cars every day. My lawyer brain immediately went to, you know, justifying wanting to drink by all of the other risky things that I do. Yeah, totally. Right. And I think that that we get in our cars understanding that we need to wear our seatbelt. We understanding that we need to put it in four wheel drive. Mm -hmm. Under, like we take harm reduction precautions because we don't ignore it. And I think for me, if I could just, you know, help people to not ignore it and, and get out of this paradigm where it's a hundred percent or nothing, where I'm going to be all in as a non-drinker and, you know, totally embrace all the evidence, or I'm going to ignore it completely because it's painful. If we could just like almost have this new area of just being incredibly mindful, whether that's taking a break and looking at your habits or whether it's, you know, just having uh, what I call non-negotiables, like a few different things in your head where you're like, you know, I'm, I'm just not going to go there anymore. That's, that's my non-negotiable. If I do, I'm putting myself in a little bit of a timeout. It's a longer break, you know, just becoming saying, okay, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do it knowing the risks. I, I feel like we owe it to ourselves. I mean, we're, we're more conscious. I had this crazy conversation. Sorry to go on a tangent. No, but bring it. Yeah. I literally was sitting around with a group of girlfriends and they were all drinking wine and I was drinking a plastic water bottle. <laughs> and one of them is like, you know, those have BPA. <laughs> and, and I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> like, you're like, what? You know, that's ethanol in your glass. Like, that's the same stuff that goes into your like car. Yeah. I, I can't even comprehend that you're drinking what, but that's, that's the level of us not. Right. Let's, let's level our understanding of the risk basically. 
Yeah. And then make your decision. And there's no right or wrong decision, in my opinion. I know that's contrary to the traditional kind of recovery community, but like, in my opinion, there's no right or wrong decision, but, but go into it mindfully. Like you owe it to yourself to do that. I mean, so like I said, uh, I think I said it at the top to, to our listeners. So I, I went through the alcohol experiment and today is day 30. So today's my last day. I read most of your emails. Um, I've read the book and I've been engaging with this idea of, okay, so what kind of a drinker do I want to be going forward? And going into it, I think I drink too frequently, um, or I thought I drank too frequently, and occasionally excessively, but mostly just too often. And coming out of it, I'm thinking, you know, exactly that thing, the cost benefit, the mindfulness of it, you know, the, it's probably not worth drinking alcohol because I'm bored, especially on a weeknight, you know, but... But if somebody, if I'm at dinner and somebody orders a $300 bottle of wine, um, my curiosity is enough to overcome the risk there where I want to know what a $300 bottle of wine, a glass of that tastes like or scotch or what, you know, but like, and in between there is a whole lot of stuff where it's probably just not worth it. And that's kind of the reflection that I am taking away from this. And, but that as a general position, it's probably better for me to just not drink. It's probably, I'm better off. It's, I'm, it's healthier and I feel better. So. And it's so interesting I when I have this conversation with people and they, they reframe it for themselves where, oh my gosh, so I can really just say no occasionally. I remember my boss, yeah. the one who really got me into drinking in the first place in a way, because he was like, Amy, why aren't you at the happy hour? Like what's going on? I'm like, oh, I don't really drink. He's like, oh no, it's not about that. you got to network here. You got to show up for the big bosses who are in town from London. You got to be here. And I was like, okay. Um, but right. I'll do that. <laughs> yeah. And I was dead serious about my career. So if I had to, you know, learn how to drink to, to be, you know, promoted by all means, there was no, no snag for me about it because again, just, it's not common knowledge that there is some risk there. And about a year after I had left that role and about probably two years after the book was out, he's like, Hey, I read your book. And it's so nice just to be able to say no sometimes. Like I, I just never yeah. felt like that. We were all keeping up with each other. Like we were literally all keeping up with each other. I had so many coworkers who were like, I, well, I just drank because you were always ordering more drinks. I was like, what? Are you kidding me? I was just doing it because mm -hmm. you were. Like, I didn't want that eighth drink. I knew that was going to make me feel like crap. And, you know, it was just so funny how we do because it's unexamined. And like so many things that are unexamined, they just can fester and create this life of its own. I had another friend and she's like, Annie, oh my gosh. I feel like I've been going through my life accidentally drinking. I walk into a dinner party and somebody puts a glass of wine in my hand and, and I just do. drink it's it. Default. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's, there's not even any consciousness in it, which is why so much of my work focuses on bringing this stuff into the consciousness and then saying, okay, what do I really want? What's really, and without guilt, right? Yeah. Because it's so important. Like it doesn't work. You know, the guilt, the, we all know that alcohol causes more deaths than, you know, all prescription and illegal drugs combined. Like that's pretty common knowledge. Like it's really a harmful substance that doesn't change our behavior on a regular basis, you know, but conscious asking yourself the better question of like, huh, what do I really want? When is it really worth it? You know, when is it not worth it? And, and then making those decisions in the now, I mean, I feel like that's the best approach to most things, alcohol, food, whatever. Mm -hmm. Instagram. <laughs> that makes sense. We are overdue. I got to take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to flip that and talk about how those who drink can have better manners towards those who choose not to. So we'll be back in a minute. Support for today's episode comes from Rankings.io, a search engine optimization agency working exclusively for personal injury law firms. 
Simply put, Rankings.io helps personal injury law firms dominate first page rankings. You'll never have to chase them for an update or hunt them down for an answer. Your clients expect you to be accessible and Rankings will meet that standard for communication and transparency. You'll have a full team of SEO specialists fighting to put you at the top of Google search results. Personal injury lawyer SEO is all they do, so all their processes, playbooks, and people are completely focused on generating qualified cases for your firm. Best of all, you'll be one of an elite few. Delivering exceptional service and results requires focus, so Rankings.io carefully vets clients before accepting them. It's an ideal fit for growth-oriented personal injury law firms. To see if you're a fit, visit Rankings.io slash Lawyerist to get started. Lawyerist podcast listeners can get 20% off an SEO discovery audit using coupon code Lawyerist. Unlock your team's productivity with Text Expander. You can easily insert text snippets in any application from a library created by you and your team. You'll reduce errors and increase productivity. Text Expander can save you so much time, it's like getting an extra employee. Text Expander is available for Mac, Windows, iPhone, and iPad, and Chrome. Show listeners can get 20% off their first year. Visit textexpander.com/podcast to learn more about Text Expander. Support for today's episode comes from Back Office Betty's, the only virtual receptionist company exclusively dedicated to small law firms that offers unlimited calls. Betty's boutique service boasts customized call handling and virtual assistant services provided by highly trained, relentlessly friendly team members ready to help grow your firm even when you're out of the office. Visit backofficebetty's.com lawyers to get a free one-week trial and use the promo code podcast to receive $150 off your first month of service. So we're back. So Annie, as I was reading about the challenges in your Facebook group, in your emails, in the book, about how challenging it can sometimes be to be the non-drinker in the room and, and reflecting on the conversation we've been having, it strikes me that people who are drinking <laughs> could bear some of the responsibility to have a better attitude about those who choose not to as well. Like what are some what are some good manner best practices that the drinkers in the room can have? It's such a great question because again, it's it's so innocent. I mean, it's so full of just lack of examination. I remember saying constantly that I just didn't trust people who didn't drink, you know? I have said that and I am ashamed of it. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, and I just really felt that was true. I mean, if they're not willing to have one or two and really say what's on their mind and all this stuff, I, I just wasn't going to trust them or whatever the case was. And, and I think that it's, it's so funny because if you, if you take a step back and you look at it, there's this great comedian that I saw and he's basically compared he doesn't drink and he compared it to not eating mayonnaise. And he was like, yeah, what if I walked in? And I was like, no, I don't want any mayonnaise. And people are like, oh my gosh, do you have a mayonnaise problem? Do I don't think we can hang outside? out anymore. Like, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, you're a downer on this. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want me to like, do you not want to see the fact that I'm putting mayonnaise on? Do you, <laughs> do you not want me to use mayonnaise around you? Like what's the, you know? And so I, I think really just making it a non-issue, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like making, if someone says, I think the point where, the etiquette goes wonky again, very innocently is what do you want to drink? Oh, I'd love an iced tea. Oh, are you sure? Wait, right. are Just you, don't are say you that. not drinking? Like, <laughs> yeah. I remember the first time I was on a business trip in London and I didn't prepare anybody. And I remember talking to like my husband and being like, should I tell people ahead of time? Like, of course you overthink it as the, as the person in the room who's not going to be drinking. You overthink it. And I was like, no, no, it's not going to be a big deal. Just go into it. It's no problem. And so I, I walked in and this coworker, Danny, she said, Hey, Annie, do you want to drink? And I was like, no, thanks. I'm just going to have whatever. And and she's like, wait, are you pregnant? And I was like, no. And she's like, well, are you sick? I'm like, no. And she's like, well, well, 
no, what, what's happening? What's going right. on? She was so almost aggressive. You said, you said drinking is the only like drug that you have to explain why you don't take. Right. Right. And so if we could just, as an etiquette, just like, don't make anybody explain it. That, I mean, just that would go so far, you know, just and then chill. just chill. <laughs> One of the reasons that I said, you know, I, I'm trying to avoid making sweeping pronouncements to myself or to anybody else about my takeaways from a 30 day experiment with not drinking. But, um, but one of the things I found compelling in your book was you talk about, okay, so you're wondering what your future is going to be. Let me talk to you about moderation. And I found it really compelling. You argue that moderation is harder than drinking or not drinking because you actually have to kind of obsess about the fact that you're not drinking. It's, it's like going on a diet. All you can think about is the thing that you don't have. Yeah. Moderation is a lot like being on an alcohol diet. Mm -hmm. And so how I differentiate this in the alcohol experiment, which is the more recent book. So I think it has a little bit of updated thinking, but I differentiate it between like liberation versus fixation. Yeah. Because I think that if you're truly liberated from, from alcohol, where it doesn't have, it doesn't have its kind of hooks in you. And just to be really clear, like alcohol in the brain overstimulates dopamine. Like you have an artificially high level of it. Dopamine tells you, Hey, that thing you just did, I need you to do that again to survive. It's the same thing with, with sex, with food, you know, it's like a dog. It's <laughs> like click training for dogs, right? Absolutely. And so the we dopamine have this, is the clicker. <laughs> exactly. We have this idea that if, if alcohol gets its hooks in me, somehow it's my fault. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, I'm just one of those people who just can't do it. And, and we've made this like dichotomy where there's these alcoholics and they're different than us and they're, they're, let's pity them. I'm so sad for them, whatever. But like, since you're a human and you have blood and flesh and bones and brain cells, like alcohol is going to react like alcohol does in your brain. It, it doesn't matter. And so drinking every single day and then stopping, it's going to make it a little bit hard, at least in the short term, for you to just easily give it up. It's just like sugar. Sugar you'll have, you'll have a craving. Yeah. You're gonna have a craving. And so we make that really wrong in ourselves, which is something I just wanted to mention. But yeah, it's not a willpower thing. It's a biological, chemical, mental thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It has nothing to do with you being strong enough or, you know, good enough or not being you know, but we've made it all that. We mm -hmm. made people drinking too much. Like you, we don't have like cigarette aholics or like heroin, <laughs> you know, heroinism. Like yeah. we're just like, no, cigarettes are addictive. I guess we do like, like potheads yeah. though. <laughs> that's true. That's, that's, that's <laughs> totally a fair point. That's funny. Yeah. But with alcohol, no, it's, it's all about the person, the person, something wrong mm -hmm. with the person. And we feel that shame because we've been carrying it for a long time. And so what I, what I like to do is just really differentiate between this idea of liberation, which is you walk into a party. What's your first thought? Is your first thought, okay, am I going to drink? Am I not going to drink? Where, where is the drinks? What is there to drink? You're fixated. That's the fixation side of it. If you walk into the party and you're like, oh, who's here? Alcohol is not top of mind. And so I think yeah. it's really about, and I have a whole kind of list in the book of different ways you can look at this in different circumstances to just give people a framework to think about it. But the key for me, I wanted alcohol to become small and irrelevant in my life. And I, like you, I do not make sweeping I will never say I'm never drinking again for two mm. reasons. Number one, I know how the brain works and the brain's going to go, whoa, 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 that's too scary. I can't do it. It's forbidden fruit. Oh my gosh. You know, so what I say is I drink whatever I want. 
I just haven't wanted to have a drink in five years. So like, and I, it is true. I haven't wanted to because I've done a lot of work on my thinking and what I believe about alcohol. And when you believe the things that the science says, it's, it's hard to want to in most circumstances. And that's what my work is really centered on. But when you're fixated on it, it creates a huge amount of mental noise. There's mm-hmm. a huge amount of back and forth. And am I going to, am I not going to, there's a huge amount of just thinking about drinking. Or I've always taken breaks to make sure that I can, Mm -hmm. but there was something different about this one because previously it's always been for a week or two or three or four. It's I'm not drinking. I'm not drinking. I'm not drinking. Right. It's that's the constant mantra in my head, basically. Yeah. The breaks without the mindset shift, which is what the alcohol experiment delivers that nothing else does are literally creating the diet mentality. Mm -hmm. It's creating the forbidden fruit. It's okay. Two things come out of the break. One man, did I miss it? And two, Thank God I proved to myself that I, I don't have a problem. And exactly. so both of those things yes, exactly. accumulate into more drinking, mm-hmm. ironically. And so, yeah, so I didn't want that with the alcohol experiment. With the alcohol experiment, you're 15 days in, you're like, huh, I don't even think I want to drink. That's mm-hmm. interesting. Maybe I'll never drink. Maybe I will. Who knows? I'm just going to play it by ear. Like, And so it's really this fascinating giving you back all the power because I'm just giving you the knowledge. I'm just taking this thing that's previously unexamined and we're going deep into examining it. And then you're, you're making your own decision again, based on, yeah, maybe I want to skydive someday. There's risk in that. Maybe I want to keep drinking. There's risk in that. Mm -hmm. But for me, the goal should always be, and again, it's about asking your brain a better question. The goal should be freedom. (laughs) It is not free in my opinion Mm. to stop drinking and go to meetings every single day about drinking. And if people, that works for them and they need to do that, that is amazing and it's beautiful and I support that 100%. In my life, that would not be freedom. That would be giving alcohol more power than it even had when I was drinking it. And so for me, freedom is getting rid of the thinking, getting rid of the fixation, getting rid of the, the desire so that it is small and irrelevant. So then, you know, and, and that's what people report. Like, they're like, well, if I want a drink, I have one. But if I don't, I'm not thinking about it. I'm not craving it. And I think if you are in the fixated part, if you are where it's taking up a lot of your mental energy to be like, am I going to, am I not going to, how much, when? I mean, I remember all of those things. I'm not going to drink until Friday. Okay, I'm just, can do that. So I'm just going to not drink until Thursday. Couldn't do that. Okay, I'm just going to have one alcohol-free day. <laughs> right. right. I mean, you, you share these examples from your own background and, and, and as just general examples in the book and and in in the the emails that I received through the alcohol experiment and it's they just so resonate with me that I'll be like you know I, I feel like I've had a drink every night for five days in a row maybe tonight I shouldn't drink and inevitably in the evening when I'm tired and bored and my defenses are down that crumples and it's because I'm trying to moderate I think that's why it resonated so strongly with me where I was like yeah, it's a lot easier just to say, nah, I'm probably not drinking. <laughs> yeah. And that, there's another factor of the brain that it's like, you could look at the brain like a little kid, right? Like if a little kid is coming to you and they want ice cream mm-hmm. and they think there's a chance they're going to get ice cream, how much are they going to talk to you about it? <laughs> Even if you say no, if they still think there's a chance, they will you ask not me shut one up. more time. The answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> they will say everything possible. They will never shut up. Mm-hmm. But if they know there's no chance, if they're sure there's no chance, if you say, you know what, today, like, like if they believe your word mm-hmm. and they know there's no chance, they shut up and they let it go. The brain is the same way. And that's why this firm decision for 30 days can feel really easy because you've said no chance, 30 days, no chance. You've reset your brain default. shuts up. The yeah. brain goes away. It's like, okay, I'm not drinking. Let's think about other more interesting stuff. But if you go into it, which is what moderation is, am I going to do it? Am I not going to do it? How much am I going to have? 
the brain is not going to stop because guess what? It craves the artificial stimulation that alcohol provides at a neurochemical level. I mean, there's just not really any getting around the science behind that. And so it's going to create a lot of internal, am I, am I not? And you know, none of that feels good. But if you make a firm decision, and I always recommend that people, you know, just don't go back into it after an experiment. Don't go back into it mindlessly. Yeah. Don't let somebody just put a, a bottle of beer in your hand. And make party. a decision. You know, make a decision. Yeah. And and preferably make the decision before whatever event there is. So if you go, it, I always say maybe means yes. <laughs> That's You go great. out to a happy hour and you're like, oh, maybe. I don't know. I'm doing pretty good. Maybe. You're going to drink mm-hmm. most of the time. If you go and you're like, no, not tonight. Maybe tomorrow night. You're not going to drink and, you know, and, and you're going to have so much more fun because you've made that decision ahead of time. So you, um, you come from the world of marketing, which is, has a famously hard drinking culture as well. And law certainly does. And we at lawyers, we, we put on events, we have conferences, we have meetups, we, you know, we host things and we have been trying to decide like, what is it, what does it look like to change the culture of our profession or the world in general? around um, how central we make alcohol to things. Because on that idea, like just putting alcohol front and center in an event feels like you're turning, you're, you're setting those maybes up for failure. You know, what are what are some of your ideas or, or advice for how we can change the culture of the profession, the culture of socializing, the culture of networking, whatever? So I, I've been actually working with a young man at Stetson Law School about doing an alcohol experiment within the law school and kind of doing it as a voluntary wellness thing. And I think something like that, like within universities and just providing it as, you know, an optional thing where people could even do it as a fundraiser, you know, get pledges for my 30 days or whatever the case is, I think could be really powerful as a very tangible thing. But I think the broader and deeper answer to that is, you know, like all change happens, it happens with a minority and not a minority that is sadly sober. As I like to say, I remember a friend of mine getting sober about 11 years ago and she was the poster child for oh my gosh, I never want to be sober (laughs) (laughs) because it looked so miserable. And she, and she reports that she felt really miserable. And so I think when you, when you feel like you have to give up alcohol because you've drank too much and now finally you're just going to have to do it and bummer like that, that, that gives the example of like, geez, that's not anything I ever want. Where on the other hand, if you come into a situation, you've had a mindset shift, you've decided this is a wellness conversation. You've decided, Hey, you know, tonight I'm not drinking. And you walk in there and you order a nice tea and you're laughing and having a good time as you will. That really has a ripple effect. It is profound because like I said earlier, we're all really keeping up with each other. And it's soon, it's incredible how just one person doing something different proudly and with the right mindset of not, you're not in a, I don't get to, you're in a kind of like a vegan. Like, I don't want me. I'm not like, you know, pining over your hamburger. Cause like right. I made my decision. Like I'm proudly vegan or whatever the case is. You open up this whole other conversation. It's like, wow, that's cool. So, huh, how'd you do that? Yeah. And then all of a sudden that really starts to shift. So I do think it is very grassroots and it is like everything, everything shifts with a kind of radical minority taking the first step. I suppose we also just need to get better at putting something, a different activity at the center of our events. I mean, it, it's really easy to fall back on, there will be alcohol. And so the alcohol is holding, a, the activity is holding a drink and and socializing, whereas we're not very good at at putting other activities centrally to the things that we plan, I guess. Yeah. And I think that one thing that I've seen people do, corporations do, and bars do, is just have a very visible non-alcoholic option mm-hmm. and it will blow your mind. Yeah. That makes because sense. there isn't one. If you had something that is 
like virgin sangria, something that's nice tasting and kind of fancy looking, but it's a non-alcoholic alternative. Or you, you know, you walk up to those little bars in the hotel where you're at the, everybody's networking and socializing and there's the bar and they just have a just sign that says, Hey, non-alcoholic options. And they list like a, you know, not an alcoholic virgin mojito or whatever the case is. It's like blows people. They're like, <laughs> I can't believe how many people took me up on this. It's just that it hadn't been an option before. I was reading, uh, I, I ordered some seed lip while I was on the alcohol experiment, which um, for those who have never heard of it, like I hadn't, is a distilled spirit that is non-alcoholic. It's interesting. I'm not sure. I think it's worth 30 bucks a bottle. But one of the things I love about it is that it's not trying to be a fake cocktail. Right. Like if I wanted to drink cocktails, I would drink cocktails. I want to find interesting things to drink that are not alcohol-based or facsimiles of alcohol-based drinks. And I've been pleased to see as I've been going out and doing things that more and more bars seem to be getting this idea that they can be creative with beverages that aren't just sugar and aren't just cocktails without alcohol in them, um, which is kind of neat to see. So I was on um, Good Morning America last January and we filmed in a brewery, in a distillery. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to the owner and I was like, so what's he's like, it's crazy. In the last two years, the amount of requests we get for, you know, interesting things to drink that are non-alcoholic has just skyrocketed. I mean, it's like many, many multiples. And he's like, it's not just the like pregnant women and, you know, the few people who are sober. It's, it's like a lot of people just don't want to drink all the time anymore. That seems healthy. Speaking of which, by way of closing, I suppose, what's your favorite beverage for social non-alcoholic beverage consumption? It's funny. I'm drinking it right now. I love Brew Doctor Kombucha. It's hmm. like a clear mind, like this organic fermented tea has rosemary and sage in it. I think it's great. I'm still trying to get my head around kombucha, but um, Aaron <laughs> Street, my business partner, makes his own and his mom is starting her own business, brewing kombucha out of her house and selling it. So I think I need to get with the program. <laughs> well, and you need to be really careful because if there's a lot of very vinegary tasting kombuchas. Yeah, I think that's where I started when I was like, Ugh, yeah. But, yeah, you have one of the wrong ones. And you're like, oh, that's why would anybody? But the thing that that's great about it, if you can get a good one, is it's very mild and it's sippable. Like it has almost the, mm -hmm. I, I don't know if it's called speed bumps or something. You know how alcohol, you're not going to just down it all. Right. Like, but orange juice, you're just going to chug it. And then what are you going to do? Drink 18 orange juices? It's not going to happen. Right. So kombucha is a nice, you feel like an adult still. <laughs> but what you just nailed, speed bumps, I like that because that is a quality that alcoholic beverages have where they encourage you to sip them and drink them slowly. I mean, un until you get to a certain point that water doesn't have, you can just chug a glass right. of water, you know, it, um, right. it's, it's an interesting quality that is harder to find outside of alcoholic drinks. And, but I have noticed that about kombucha. You're putting it into the experience of drinking rather than the facilitating hydration, right? Yeah. Which is what we're after really. That is what I hope to see more of if this idea spreads is drinks that are enjoyable to drink, not because they get you tipsy. Yeah. Absolutely. Annie Grace, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate your time. And I think it's worth encouraging listeners to, you know what, go and try the alcohol experiment. It's, uh, <laughs> I guess if you find yourself coming up with excuses like I did, I, I, I was looking at the page and I'm like, oh, but the holidays are coming up. There's going to be things that I want to drink. And I'm like, damn it, that, now I'm making excuses. So I have to do it. Give it a try. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so anyway, thank you so much, Annie. Thank you. Are you interested in implementing the ideas you've heard on today's podcast into your law firm? Could you use a little help? Hey guys, it's Stephanie, the VP of Community Success here at Lawyers, and I'd love to help you tackle your business or take it to the next level. 
head over to go.lawyerist.com backslash start to sign up for a quick call with me. And let's talk about how Lawyerist can help you create your best law firm. Make sure to catch next week's episode of the Lawyerist podcast by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app. And please leave a rating to help other people find our show. You can find the notes for today's episode on lawyerist.com slash podcast. The Lawyerist podcast is edited by Paul Fisher. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you.